We are, uh, we are in our 10th week uh, in a series on the Ten Commandments, all right? And now this Sunday, today, is actually on the Ninth Commandment, which is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbors. And uh, so the very first sermon we did was an overview. And so here we find ourselves in week 10 covering the Ninth Commandment, this, uh, this prohibition against bearing false witness. We're going to jump into this in a few minutes. We're going to talk about any number of different things. But before we do that, let me tell you, I uh, actually watched a great TED Talk uh, that discussed this issue of lying. And that was interesting. One of the things they talked about in the TED Talk is they said that the average person lies two to three different times each day. Now, most of those lies that they tell are what we would call the polite lie. It's the, you know, when you ask, when your wife asks you, does this skirt make me look chubby? You say, whether it's true or not, no, it does not make you look chubby. That's the right answer, if anybody's wondering. I may have just broken the Ninth Commandment and taught you to do it. I apologize. Uh, anyway, so, but anyway, it's interesting because basically in the TED Talk, they say that there's this massive bell curve, and that essentially 98% of people are right in the middle of this bell curve, and, and in that swath of people, the average person lies two to three times a day. Now, so just as an experiment, just for fun, if you have already told one fib, a polite lie today, you know, my phone battery died, I'm on my way, whatever the case may be, if you've already told a fib today, I want you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Nobody's going to judge you. Just raise your hand. Okay, now, those of you who raised your hand, the five or six of you that actually were honest, I want you to look around the auditorium, and I want you to notice that those are the people you have to watch out for. Because those are the really devious people, the people that didn't raise their hand. They're like, I'm not telling anybody. Anyway. Okay, now, <clears throat> just for transparency's sake, let me tell you, that's not my joke. I heard that somewhere else. So, anyway. I, I don't remember exactly where I heard it. But, anyway. So, I'm being honest. Telling the truth. Okay. Two things we're not going to talk about today. Uh, just so you know about this. We're not going to talk about the lie of necessity. You know, you can go talk to your ethics professor, your philosophy professor, or one of your religion professors about this idea of the lie of necessity. What that is is that if you were living back in Nazi Germany and you were hiding some Jewish people in your home and uh, the SS knocked on the door and asked you the question, are you hiding any Jewish people in your home? The lie of necessity would be the lie where someone would say, no, I don't have any Jewish people in my home. And uh, again, we're not going to discuss that this morning. Um, There's a lot of great literature on it. Theologians have debated it. And I'm going to let you do your own homework on that. Uh, If you want to, you can come. We can talk about it afterwards. We're also not going to talk about the polite lie. Again, this is another, uh, another lie that is discussed in ethics courses or in philosophy. And that's the, do these pants make me look fat? Do you like this haircut? You know, when people ask you things, our culture is, in some respects, founded on all these, you know, very polite little lies. Good to meet you. You know, there's all sorts of little things that we might not always mean. You know? So, like I said, we're not going to talk about those things. Uh, we're going to sort of talk about the meat of the ninth commandment, and uh, we can talk about those other things afterwards. I'd gladly chat with you about them or direct you to some good literature that discusses them. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into Exodus 20, verses 1 through 16. Now, before I even read this, let me say that one of the things that I discovered in doing all of my reading, uh, there's a, a man named Dan Ariely, who uh, actually is a professor at Duke, and uh, his area of study is particularly on truth-telling and honesty in America. And uh, one of the things that he said, he said it was really interesting, he said, and he actually is of Jewish descent, he said one of the things that happens is he said that when you simply remind people of certain moral standards, that there's an uptick in their willingness or ability to then sort of behave in accordance with those moral standards. And he actually uses the Ten Commandments as an example of this. He said there are a lot of times 
where people have gotten into the habit of stealing or of lying or some other sin that's found or is addressed in the Ten Commandments. And simply by reminding people of, uh, of the Ten Commandments or reminding people of these moral codes, that all of a sudden people are like, oh yeah, I forgot. I've been being dishonest in the way that I deal with people. Or I've been stealing in this way from my work, even if it hasn't been uh, completely overt. And so as we read the Ten Commandments, let these things sink in. And uh, we're going to end with verse 16, which is, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is from the NIV, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, again, just want to thank you for inviting us into your presence. Father, I thank you that uh, in the Ten Commandments, um, you've given us uh, a reminder of, uh, of what our society should be like. Father, of, of a reminder of what our culture should be founded upon, Father. And not only have you given us a reminder of your character and given us a reminder of what our society should look like, but Father, we know that in the Ten Commandments, um, you've given us uh, a list of commands that we, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we cannot keep and we have not kept. And so, Father, we are forced to look somewhere for a hero, for a rescuer who can save us from our own sins. And so, Father, we're driven to Jesus. And so, Father, we're here today, not because we've been particularly good or because we haven't been too bad, but, Father, we're here today because we trust completely uh, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, for our justification and uh, for our declaration of, of not guilty. Father, we pray these things again in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me start off with a question. Um, how many of you out there uh, have spent much time watching uh, cycling, bicycle, bicycling on TV? How many of you guys have watched the Tour de France? Some of those events come on TV. You know, from where I'm standing, not a lot, okay? But I guarantee you, a lot more people watch the Tour de France um, or have watched it over the last 10 years than ever would have in years past, and the reason for that is because of one person, Lance Armstrong, right? So you guys know most of the story about Lance Armstrong. Hopefully you know who he is, but essentially, you know, Lance Armstrong was just this kid that was born in Plano, Texas. He got into to triathlon, so he began riding his bike, 
And uh, at some point in time, as a young guy, he, he actually made his way up through the ranks of professional cycling. And uh, in the early 90s, and, uh, and toward the middle of the 90s, he actually got on board with some European cycling teams and became, became just an amazing cyclist. And so he ra- rose up through the ranks. People looked at him, and they thought, you know, here's the next great American cyclist. And sure enough, what you know about Lance Armstrong is that he won seven consecutive Tour de France's from, I believe, 1999 through 2005. It was amazing. And during his reign of those seven years, what was, what was truly amazing, while he was winning and dominating the field, is there were all these other cyclists that were getting busted because of using either steroids or PEDs or blood doping. And all the while, these people were pointing their fingers at Lance Armstrong and saying, he's doing it too. And the whole time, Lance Armstrong said, I am not doing it. This is all guts. It's all my resolve. It's all these amazing things. And what made the story that much more amazing is the fact you know, that Lance Armstrong had overcome uh, various forms of cancer just a few years prior. Just this amazing story. Well, so after 2005, he stepped away from cycling for a couple years. But then, like many athletes do, he decided he wanted to make a comeback. And so there was a man whose name is Alex Gibney who actually signed on with uh, Lance Armstrong to do a documentary. And the documentary that he was going to make was going to be called The Road Back. And the idea was he was going to be the story of Lance Armstrong stepping away from cycling for several years and coming back and his rise back to prominence. What's interesting, however, is uh, we know that what happened about a year ago was that Lance Armstrong went on TV with Oprah and he finally, after years and years of lying and deceiving and denying the fact that he'd used any performance-enhancing drugs, admitted on Oprah, of all places, that he actually had been lying all of those years. And so this movie that this man, Alex Gibney, this documentary that he was putting together, all of a sudden went from the road back to a movie that's called The Armstrong Lie. And it actually opened in theaters on November the 14th. And so here's what's amazing about this is this man, Mr. Gibney, had four years with Lance Armstrong. And what originally was going to be all about cycling and him pushing through the pain has now become a movie about how this individual, Lance Armstrong, could lie and deceive over and over again in the face of cameras, in the face of friends, to all of these different people. He was dishonest over and over again. It's only previewed in Portugal so far. And so I don't know when it's going to make its way to America, but I'm going to recommend it anyway. But it, from everything I read, it sounds great. Here's a review that I read or a section of a review that I read from the USA Today. Uh, and again, this just came out a couple days ago. Here's what the review has to say about this movie, The Armstrong Lie, and particularly about Lance Armstrong. It says this, For all his former stance as a great American athletic hero, Lance Armstrong's next career could be sleazy politician or used car salesman, right? Two people who aren't exactly known for their honesty. He lies with such conviction, it's terrifying. And his galling hubris, that's pride, is all there for audiences to watch, absorb, and puzzle over in the fascinating The Armstrong Lie. He goes on to say, not only was the bicyclist duplicitous, For years, with officials, reporters, and anybody who would dare to ask him if he used performance-enhancing substances to win the Tour de France seven times, but viewers can see him lie bald-faced to the director of this chilling documentary. What results is an enthralling, clear-eyed, and penetrating examination, not only of a fallen hero, but an exploration of drive, moral relativism, and the cult of personality. 
It's bewitching to watch Armstrong deceive with such a plum. Sometimes he lied glibly with a charming smile, at other times with staunch defiance or angry snarls, but prevaricate he did. The film was plenty, has plenty of footage of Armstrong on his bike competing in the Tour de France, but it's Armstrong's dogged insistence that he didn't dope that is unequivocally the most captivating to watch. It is made all the more so when he later admits to the filmmaker, and of course publicly, that he did lie and never quite explains why he kept up the charade and so vocally for so long. It's that last sentence which is interesting to me and I think which is germane to our discussion today where the, the author of this, uh, this review says what, what the movie never quite addresses is why did he do it and why did he keep up the lie? Now, what's interesting because Gibney in a later uh, interview actually gives the answer to that very question, and we're going to get there in a few minutes. But most of us, again, we followed this story, whether it was in newspapers or online or in the news, and the truth is anytime an athletic uh, personality or a politician or a religious figure gets involved with such deceit, we are absolutely appalled. We're just absolutely appalled that somebody would lie so blatantly and so consistently and, and without guilt seemingly, right? We're always just appalled at those people, and it's interesting to watch the people on the news as they, you know, are judgmental toward those very people. But one of the things that I think we all have to admit, and we have to understand what Jesus is doing, and what God is doing, even the Ten Commandments, is he's bringing us this commandment as a mirror to show ourselves that while we might not lie on national television, and we might not be a world-renowned athlete, or we may not be a religious figure who lies publicly, but the truth is that we all are deceptive. We all engage in deceit. We all lie here and there, and if you don't believe God, and if you don't believe Jesus, you can simply believe the sociologists and the psychologists. Here's what Romans 3 says. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Now, what's amazing about Romans 3 is what Paul's doing is he's saying, look, we're all guilty. We're all sinners. We're all broken. And our sins are varied in all these different ways. And one of them that he lists is he talks about the deception that we all engage in. He talks about the fact that we all lie in various ways all the time, or at least we've done it before. And the good news is we know what happens and what comes right after Romans chapter 3, and that's the gospel, right? And so that's what we're going to end with today. But before we get there, we're going to take a look at this ninth commandment. Now, very quickly, what's forbidden in the ninth commandment? So what's forbidden in the ninth commandment? Narrowly, what's being forbidden in the ninth commandment is essentially perjury. So it's being a false witness in some sort of a trial. And so the way that trials would have happened in the ancient Near East, especially during the time of the Israelites, is that if you lived in a city, a trial would be conducted at the city gates. And uh, there wasn't a judge like we have. There weren't lawyers like we sort of have today. So it's not like Judge Judy. Uh, but if, instead, what, what you would have at the city gates is you would have the elders of that city. And the elders would be the ones who would make a judgment on the case. You, you'd then have the plaintiff and the defendant, the person bringing an accusation and the person defending themselves. And then each of those people would be able to bring up witnesses. 
And so what's being uh, forbidden here is bringing up a false witness, someone who accuses a defendant of doing something that's wrong. Now, typically the reason that there would be a false witness is whoever the plaintiff was wanted to get something from that defendant. Maybe they had a field like in the story of Nabal in the Old Testament. Or or maybe they wanted to, to throw them in jail or maybe it was something vindictive. And so they would actually recruit people to be false witnesses and then would, you know, pay them or would give them some incentive to be a false witness. Now, God took being a false witness so seriously that uh, if a false witness was found out, that false witness would be given the same punishment that the defendant would have been given. The reason the Ninth Commandment begins here with this idea of being a false witness in a, a courtroom setting is because God is beginning and he's saying, look, this is the most serious form of a lie that you can commit. And so God is beginning there to essentially shock his initial audience to say, There's no way under any circumstances where you should be a false witness against your neighbor. So narrowly, that's what it means. More broadly, what this ninth commandment means or forbids is it forbids lying and deceit in all forms. And so it's not just perjury, but it's also lying and deceit and deception in all of its different forms. Listen to the Heidelberg Catechism. Here's the Heidelberg Catechism. It says this. It says, what is the aim of the ninth commandment? It says this. That I never give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words. We've never done that before, right? Not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices the devil uses, and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. And so what this means, this commandment really encompasses perjury. So that's Bill Clinton. It's Richard Nixon. It's Marion Jones. But it also means lying and deceit in any form. So that means Lance Armstrong, Sammy Sosa, John Edwards, Ted Haggart. And it means you and me, that we're not to involve or engage in any forms of lying and deceit. Now, you know the only reason that we're given commands, right? The only reason we're given commands is because people break those commands. That's why they exist in the first place. Now, the second thing I want to look at very quickly here is why does God hate dishonesty? Why does he hate deceit, right? Why does he hate dishonesty? Why does he hate deceit? Listen to Proverbs chapter 12, and there are many different verses that talk about God's hatred of lying and dishonesty. But Proverbs 12 verse 22 says this, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, right? It doesn't, doesn't get much worse than an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. Part of the reason that God hates dishonesty, I'm going to give you a couple quick reasons, then I'm going to focus on one main reason. One of the reasons that God hates dishonesty is because dishonesty is the, the fruit of Satan, ultimately. You know, that sounds like a Saturday Night Live skit, but the reality is that Satan is known as the father of lies, because Satan's first uh, crime that he commits, at least against humanity, is the crime of deception with Eve, where he says, You know, God surely didn't tell you that you can't eat from any tree in the garden. In other words, he twists God's, I mean, he twists God's words in order to make Eve distrust God. And so when we lie, in essence, what we're doing is we're partaking in behavior that is of or looks like the father of lies, as John, as God, Jesus talked about in John chapter 8. Not only does God hate lying because it's one of the signs of Satan or one of the, the signs of the character of Satan, but it's also opposed to the character of God. That's what Hebrews 6 and Ephesians 4 talk about. Not only that, but Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. 
in John chapter 14, 6. So God hates lying for all of those reasons, and there are many, many more. But fundamentally, for the purpose of the Ten Commandments, I want to argue that the reason that God hates lying or bearing false witness is because when we engage in bearing false witness or in deceit or in lying, that it tears the very fabric of our human relationships, that deceit corrodes society, that instead of looking to one another in trust, because there's so much lying and dishonesty in the culture, we now look at other people, instead of trusting them, we look at them in suspicion. Listen to the words of Isaiah 59, where Isaiah backs this up. He says this, For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion, and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. What Isaiah is saying there is he's painting this picture of shalom. Shalom, of course, being the idea of not just peace, but peace among men where people can trust one another and care for one another, where they're honest with one another, they love one another. And society and culture is exactly the way that God intended it to be. And here in Isaiah 59, what he says is, when we engage in deception and lying, justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. In other words, the shalom that God desires for us to experience as human beings is shattered. It's completely undone. Listen to this. I mentioned a while ago Dan Ariely, this professor of behavioral economics at Duke who primarily focuses on the idea of honesty. Uh, He wrote a book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially to Ourselves. There's a a quote that I'm going to read very quickly here, and uh, we're going to see that he backs up this very thing we're talking about. Again, he, he comes from a Jewish background, not a Christian background, but he comes to the same conclusion of Isaiah. Here's what he says in his book. Except for a few outliers at the top and the bottom, the behavior of almost everyone is driven by two opposing motivations. On the one hand, we want to benefit from cheating and get as much money or glory as possible. On the other hand, we want to view ourselves as honest, honorable people. Sadly, it is this kind of small-scale mass cheating, not the high-profile cases, that is and listen to his words, that is the most corrosive to society. Does that make sense? I first heard him on a TED Talk, right? And what he's saying is, you know, a lot of these guys that are sociologists or psychologists will come up and they'll talk about how, you know, how the polite lie and the lie of necessity, that those are all fine. In fact, you know, our, our culture runs more smoothly on them, and to some degree, pragmatically, they may be right in that. But here, Dan Ariely takes a very different tact, and what he says is that deceit, And lying and cheating in all of its form erode society for everyone. Does that make sense? That when when we begin to lie, when we begin to deceive, when we begin to cheat for our own personal and immediate gain, that all of society eventually loses out. And so the question is this. So if lying corrodes society, according to Isaiah 59, according to this professor at Duke, if lying corrodes society then why do we lie? Why do we deceive? There are a couple different answers. Um, I'm going to read a quote from Tim Keller where he addresses the deepest of the issues and the deepest of the reasons that we lie. He says this, Why do we lie or fail to love or break our promises or live selfishly? 
Of course, the general answer is because we're weak and sinful. That's sort of a level one reason why we lie. But the specific answer is that there's something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy. Something that's more important to our heart than God. Something that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desires. The key to change and even to self-understanding is therefore to identify the idols of the heart. What Keller is saying here is that every single time we lie, we do so because something at that moment is more important to us, is more fundamental to us than God is. Something is more important to us for our happiness than Jesus is. And so fundamentally what Tim Keller is saying here is he's saying every single time we lie, whether it's to gain something monetarily or gain something in terms of our reputation, or if we're lying because we're afraid of punishment, or we're lying because someone might not like us anymore, what he's saying is, is that fundamentally, when we lie, that we're doing it because something else is more important to us than God is. And so what Luther points out is he says when we do that, we're always breaking the first commandment, which says we shall have no other gods before him. Does that make sense? And so for those of you out there who lie... And admit it, the six of you, the six of you that lied, that raised your hands a little while ago, and the 99% of you that also lie that didn't admit it, when you lie, the reason that you lie is because the approval of your wife or the approval of those people at work or the approval of your friends at Barrier Shorter, at that moment, the approval of those people is more important to you than God is. In other words, those people... Are, are essentially God to you at that moment. They give you your ultimate security. They give you your approval. When you lie in order to gain something financially, at the moment, that money or that material possession to you in your heart is more important to you than God is. So you're breaking the first commandment. Does that make sense? And so again, the last sentence here is that Keller says this, and I'm going to read it one more time. If you want to change, if you actually want to stop lying... Or, if you want to understand your heart, listen to these words of Tim Keller. He says this, The key to change, and even to self-understanding, you want to know what makes you, you, you want to know why you tick the way you tick, is therefore this ability to identify the idols of your heart. Now, let me, let me touch on a couple different possibilities here. Some people have a reputation idol, or maybe it's a people-pleasing idol. There's a, a young man named Jason Blair who was a writer for the New York Times, some of you guys heard the story that came out a couple of years ago, but I think he had written something like, you know, 75 or 78 different articles for the New York Times. And uh, his fellow reporters began to complain essentially to uh, the higher ups of the New York Times saying, hey, we think that Jason is engaging in dishonesty. We think he's engaging in plagiarism. We think he's, he's actually telling lots of lies. And eventually it's going to end up to come back and bite the New York Times. And sure enough, it come to, came to find out that in essentially half of the, the stories of the articles he'd written for the New York Times, he had been involved in some type of dishonesty, right? And what's interesting is the NPR, on NPR there was an article where they talked about Jason Blair and his plagiarism and dishonesty at the New York Times. And here's the way that they diagnosed his reason for lying. Listen to this. On the NPR radio show Talk of the Nation, Blair explained that his fabrications, lies, started with what he thought was a relatively innocent infraction, using a quote from a press conference which he had missed. He described a gradual process whereby his ethical violations became worse and worse 
and contended that his main motivation was a fear of not living up to the expectations that he and others had for his career. In other words, why did he lie? Because he was afraid of letting himself down and letting these other people down. In other words, at that moment, the approval of those other people were more important to him than anything else. He lied in order to please people or to protect his reputation. Some of you out there can absolutely and totally identify. You know, some of you students out there know that you've plagiarized any number of different things, either because of the approval of your parents or the approval of your uh, professors. We all lie. Sometimes it's for reputation. Sometimes it's because we want to please people. Back to the story of Lance Armstrong. What's interesting is in the documentary, The Armstrong Lie, uh, what happens is after the documentary is over, the man who made it, uh, Gibney, basically says, the reason that I think that Lance Armstrong lied wasn't necessarily to save face. It wasn't necessarily to win. He said, I believe that Lance Armstrong was addicted to power, right? Addicted to being better and stronger and more powerful than everyone else particularly in this field. I don't know how many of you guys out there are athletes. There are different types of athletes. Some athletes just want to do better. You know, they want to get their time better. They want to keep beating their cross-country time or their lap time and swimming or whatever. There are lots of other athletes. Um, just to be very honest with you, I was one of them. You know, the reason that I played soccer and the reason that uh, I played forward the way that I did is I wanted to make other people cry. I wanted to dominate them. Right? I wanted to crush them. That, that really fueled me. And, and some of you guys are sort of chuckling a little bit. But what's interesting is, Lord willing, I'm an utterly and completely different soccer player. Now, I had a, had a discussion two nights ago with a buddy of mine who I play soccer with. And I was just kind of saying, you know, I just can't play the way I used to play. Because what fueled me was not only anger, playing angry, but was a desire just to kind of crush other people. That's ugly. It's nasty. But it's true not only for athletes, it's probably true for academics as well. It's probably true for people in business. It's probably true that lots of us want power over other people at all costs. And we will lie and deceive in all sorts of ways in order to either gain that power or to preserve that power. I just thought it was very interesting that that was Gibney's uh, take on Lance Armstrong. Last thing, we all know because we've been children or we know uh, that those of us who are children or can remember being children, that children lie. They just do. And one of the main reasons that children lie is because of fear, right? They're, they're afraid of receiving something that they don't want, punishment, right? Or maybe they're afraid of displeasing their parents or any number of different reasons. Sometimes it's a, it's a, a junior comfort idol or a pleasure idol. They, they don't want something taken away from them, right? One of the one of the best things that I've seen my friends do as they've addressed their children and worked with them through this, this concept and this idea of lying is one of the things parents that I respect have done is rather than like cracking down on their kids and punishing them fiercely and harshly when they lie, part of what these parents who I'm friends with have done is when they think their children are being dishonest because there's chocolate around their lips even after they said they didn't get any Halloween candy, they sit down and one of the first things they say is they say, hey, look, you're not in trouble you know, I absolutely love you. I think you're great. I don't want you to be afraid, but I want you to be able to tell me the truth. And what's interesting is, because children usually lie out of fear, when you start there and you just say, look, I, I just want to help you. I love you, and I don't want to punish you. I don't want to crack down on you. I want to be here for you right now. And what's interesting is, as my friends 
have started treating their kids this way in terms of their dishonesty, what they've found is that all of a sudden their kids have begun to tell the truth because they want to maybe uh, please their parents as opposed to displease them. But it's a, it takes away the motivation of fear. Anyway, we lie for approval. We lie for power. We lie for pleasure. We lie for all of these reasons. Let me end with asking this question. What do we do about Jesus, right? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but so far, if you just sort of walked out of the auditorium right now, you'd be walking away with having heard that lying is wrong and that God doesn't like lying for different reasons. And the reason we lie is this, that, and the other. But I've got to bring this back to Jesus. If you are a person that lies to avoid punishment, part of what you need to hear this morning is that Jesus took the greatest punishment you can ever possibly imagine the punishment of God's wrath so that you wouldn't have to. Does that make sense? Jesus took God's wrath. He took the punishment that was rightfully ours. And so when we fear punishment, we need to look at our hero and say, my hero, Jesus, took the greatest punishment in the world. So when we're tempted to lie to avoid punishment, we look at Jesus. If you lie because you don't want to displease someone, You need to remember that in Jesus we receive the declaration of well done, good and faithful servant, even though we know that our record is anything but well done. If we lie to gain power, we need to remember that in Jesus we're given the greatest power of all, his Holy Spirit living in us. If we lie to gain something, we need to be comforted in, in knowing that in Jesus we've gained all of God's riches at Christ's expense. Listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the Ephesians church about honesty, about truth. Verse 20, that however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body." So Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, put off all falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Speak truthfully to one another because in that you're being like God. You're created in his image. But do you know what precedes Ephesians chapter 4? You know what the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about? They're all about the gospel. They're all about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. In other words, Paul's uh, admonition to speak truthfully is based not upon an ability to earn God's righteousness or to have God like you anymore, but rather the fact that you've been given the gospel through his son, Jesus. And so in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, we're called heirs with Jesus. Uh, Paul says that you were once who were far away, were brought near by the blood of Christ. He says you've been given the boundless riches of Christ. We know Ephesians chapter 3 that says this, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom And confidence. Why do we tell the truth to one another? Because we can come before the face of the author of all of reality, the author of everything that exists. We can come and stand before the face of God with confidence. And he goes on to say, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us 
In Christ Jesus, why do we speak the truth to one another? Because God has shown us kindness in Jesus. Verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man may boast, for we are God's workmanship. Why do we speak the truth to one another? Why do we speak the truth to our neighbor? We speak the truth because we have been accepted and loved and shown kindness in Jesus. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, that the the Ten Commandments have pointed out to us in overt ways, but also in subtle ways, the depth and the pervasiveness of our guilt. Father, as we look at these commandments, we've got to admit that we have lied, Father, that we have been unfaithful to our future spouses or to our current spouses, Father. We've got to admit that, uh, that we have stolen either through gossip and slander, Father, or by physically stealing something, Father, or even as today reminds us, Father, that we've been dishonest in any number of different ways. Father, we, we ask that you would forgive us, but we also ask that you would enable us through the power of your Spirit to believe deeply that our forgiveness is found completely in your Son Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection. And so, Father, it's in his name today that we pray. Amen.